Oh, thank you, uh, thank you, GJ, for that, uh, Pastor GJ, for that amazing uh, introduction. <laughs> um, I just want to say basically that, uh, first of all, whoa, I'm still learning uh, uh, stands, obviously, so give me a second here. To find a, all right, now I'm good. Um, so first off, I just want to say thank you for the privilege to be able to come here today and speak um, what God's put on my heart. Um, thank you, Pastor Josh, for uh, uh, um, giving me the, the honor to do this. Um, and to the rest of the elder team. Uh, also, thank you, worship team, for that amazing time of worship. Um, oh, thank you. Thanks a lot. Oh, that's good. Yep, perfect. Thanks. Basically, if I can hide my, if I can hide my face from the... No. Um, so, you know, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to do this today. Um, it is a really nice day outside if you like snow, and if you don't like snow, then um, obviously it's probably not a great time for you. Uh, but, um, you know, all of that being said, um, I did want to first off say that I am not by myself. I have a wonderful wife named Kate. Uh, some of you have known her. She was the previous uh, kids director here at Evident. Uh, also, um, I don't know if you can throw the picture up of my family real quick. Uh, so that, those are um, my, uh, that's my wife, Kate, and then my four daughters, Sarah, Megan, Lillian, and Grace. Uh, so 13 down to five years old. Um, and this was at a parade that we were at one day, and it just happened to be a picture where everybody was looking the same way and smiling, which is an amazing, amazing, rare thing. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you for that. Uh, definitely love my family. Um, I, uh, I can't imagine where I'd be without them, especially without my wife Kate uh, putting up for me, with me for the last 16 years. Um, it's been great, uh, but I'm super blessed to have her and the rest of the girls that God's given me. Um, first off, I just wanted to say uh, Jesus' first recorded sermon was in Luke 4 uh, in the town of Nazareth, and people were amazed by it, but then later they wanted to throw him off a cliff. So I just want to say uh, this is my first time doing this, and I'm glad there's no cliffs around. So, uh, yeah. Secondly, a fair warning, I can talk really fast. So those of you who are old enough to remember the Micro Machines Man from the 80s, uh, from those commercials, uh, I, I'll try not to do that. I'm gonna really. I've worked hard in in uh, basically preparing for today, um, but uh, but also I just want to kind of start off uh, with prayer first, uh, because the, what I'm about to talk about and share it's hit me very hard. Um, I pray that God will use it in your lives as well uh, to kind of open your eyes to some more of the eternal uh, while we're here in this you know this temporary world that we're we're given. So if you could all just. Uh, um, just uh, uh, close your eyes, bow your heads, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you for the privilege you've given me uh, and, uh, uh, and all of us, Lord, to gather together here today. Um, I just pray that you will just be with me. Um, help me to speak your words, Lord. Help me to be a conduit for your Holy Spirit uh, to speak through me, Lord. After today, if no one remembers I was ever up here, but they remember the truth of your word, Lord, then... Uh, then, then all is well. And uh, I just thank you so much again uh, for this privilege, and I just pray that you will um, uh, just be with all of us, Lord, as we open your word. In your sin's name I ask this. Amen. So first off, I want to just uh, say in uh, my office, uh, we have a few conference rooms. One of the conference rooms, we have a whiteboard. And on that whiteboard, one day I walked in and noticed, and of course, this is a long time ago because not many of us go into the office these days, um, but in, uh, it's still on there, actually, uh, is the phrase, there's no breakthrough without first having a breakdown. <laughs> now, I believe this was written up there uh, prior to a performance review, so I can only imagine what happened during that time. But um, I do think that it's appropriate 
um, for today um, because my hope is that uh, this morning we can break down some of the barriers that might be in our hearts which will get in the way of living generous lives that are marked by joy. Um, my other hope is that God will grant us a clear picture of the eternal today. Um, like I said, even as we sit in this temporary world that he created for us, um, it's so easy to get caught up in all the things and the trappings of this world and forget about what really matters. So that's my hope and my heart is that uh, God will use me to kind of help us get past that a little bit today. So first off, I just wanted to set the stage. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, our passage today is going to be 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. And before I read it, um, just a few kind of words of background. Uh, the book of 1 Timothy was written as a letter by Paul uh, to Timothy, who was a young pastor of the church in Ephesus at the time. So basically, the history of the church in Ephesus was Paul planted it, he started it, and then uh, a little ways later, uh, Timothy took over for him and Paul left. And so while Timothy was there, a lot of great things happened, but as tends to happen in any uh, organization, even something like the church that's filled with humans, um, you know, things started to kind of get a little rough. And so Paul wrote the letter uh, to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy um, to talk about some of those things. Now, the church in Ephesus at this point was, it was around 64 AD, which is about 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection, just to give you an idea. Also, the city of Ephesus was a very wealthy uh, wealthy area. So they sat on, it sat in the ma uh, middle of a m number of major crossroads uh, in the Roman Empire, and then also was a major port city. So you had ships coming in, you had cargo going everywhere, and so because of this amount of commerce, uh, it was a very, very wealthy area. Um, of course, they had a wide variety of, of people, but at the same time, there was a lot of wealth. Um, now, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to encourage him, but also to challenge him to be on the lookout for false teaching within the church. There's a lot of that going on because over time things kind of fell away from the kind of true north. And Paul was helping to point out that true Christianity is shaped by the gospel and that those who have turned down the path of false teaching will have lives that are not gospel-centered, meaning that there's no progress towards lives that are marked by godly living. In the passage we're going to focus on today, Paul is sharing that his, his thoughts about worldly wealth and how it should be handled and what true wealth really looks like. So let's dive into the text here. So the passage, again, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Um, I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, some of the other translations are very similar, though. So first off, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So first off, let's talk about our relationship with money. So in the first half of verse 17, it says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. So let's stop there and talk about our relationship with money. So first off, notice I didn't say, let's talk about money. Money is amoral. So money is, it has no moral standing on its own. There's no intrinsic rightness or wrongness about money. So the dollar bills you have in your wallet, it's just paper. It's, you know, the coins, which, by the way, are in high demand these days. <laughs> um, those are, it's, it's, just, it's just metal. Um, you know, there's no intrinsic right or wrong about it. Um, I'm sure you've heard it said somewhere along the line that money is a tool, and, uh, and it's true. Um, like a cordless drill or a screwdriver or a chainsaw, um, you know, money can be utilized in a lot of ways and for a lot of great things. The problem is, though, that like those tools, um, they can cause some trips to the hospital. <laughs> money 
um, can cause harm as well. The, the thing is, typically though, it's not really noticed outwardly. Rather, it's all about a relationship with our tool called, with this tool called money. So my, my goal is to kind of have a little bit of a DTR. So for those of you who didn't come from some of the circles I did, um, a DTR is short for defining the relationship. Uh, so I went to Taylor University, I uh, met my wife there. Um, that was a big thing there. I know a number of other colleges and, and other organizations like that um, tend to have that same idea, which is basically, it's the moment you bring clarity to the nature of a relationship. Whether, uh, you know, whereas before it may have been clouded and, and uncertain. So, so uh, basically, that's my goal, is to try to help us really figure out what is our relationship with money, what should it be, what, what usually, you know, what is it usually now? Um, now, many of you might be sitting here and thinking, especially if after that verse I just read about, you know, command those who are rich in this present world. Um, well, hey, you know, I'm not rich. You know, phew, I don't, you know, I can kind of tune out for a while. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. Um, there are studies. So I did a lot of looking online. I found out that statistics can show, I mean, I knew this before, but I especially knew this after doing some research for this lesson, um, st that studies and statistics can show anything for anybody uh, who, who wanted to. And the, but I did find that there are some studies out there that show uh, from the Brookings Institution, Foundation for Economic Education, and Forbes, um, that, and there's some other articles out there as well that state that the poorest 20% of Americans are actually have, a, have higher consumption than most of the, the average of most of the nations in Europe. It's the poorest 20%. So this is based on consumption. So this is how much they spend on things. Um, now, there's other uh, publications, a few online ones I found, Slate and Quartz, um, for example, that'll say, some places say the U.S. has the second highest rate of poverty in the world. So, of course, it's the other side. Well, at the end of the day, they're basing it on the income, so how much money uh, the people actually bring in. Well, the problem with that is income doesn't also show a lot of the government assistance programs when they, do, when they measure those things. So, at the end of the day, though, however you measure it, um, however you might look at it, um, it would be very tough to say definitively where the poor in America rank versus the rest of the world. But if you happen to visit many other countries, so Haiti, for example, <laughs> um, then you're going to find that the living conditions there are far below what we're used to seeing here in the U.S., um, even for the, the poorest among us. Um, there's a lot of, of, of safety nets that we have here and in many other developed countries that they just don't have there. Um, so I'm not saying, though, that we don't have a lot of work to do with the poor here in the U.S., so don't get me wrong. There is a ton of stuff we can do. Um, John the Baptist said in Luke 11 that, um, you know, if anybody has two coats, you know, that they should share and give one to someone who has nothing. I'm certain, especially looking at today, that there are folks around even our community that don't have a winter coat, you know, that, that to keep them warm as they walk around, you know, outside in the snow. So there is a lot of need there. But what I'm saying is, and the truth, I guess, that I'm getting at is that if you live in America and have utility bills for a place you call home, whatever that looks like, and you came here today with a full stomach, or in most of your cases, you're sitting there at home with a full stomach, or at least you had the opportunity to have a full stomach, um, then most of the population in the world would consider you rich. Um, and, and I've been in some of those places. I've been to um, a very poor part of uh, the Bahamas, actually, where a lot of Haitian migrants uh, were, were encamped. I've been to uh, the uh, Baja, uh, Mexico, so off of California, where there's migrant farmers that move up from the south every year to farm crops in the dusty desert, and then they live in cardboard boxes, literally. So um, again, you don't see a lot of that here in the U.S. So, um, but at the end of the day, most of us can relate to being wealthy, I think, um, in some way, shape, or form that are here in the United States. So now that it can be generally understood that we're all kind of in the same boat, um, let's get back to the text. 
So Paul says that those who are rich in this world should not be arrogant or put their hope in wealth. So obviously, um, so the word arrogant, uh, let me just start off there. The word arrogant here means to act out of self-greatness or having a a false sense of superiority to others. Obviously, this is problematic because God is supposed to be the one in charge, not us. And and any time we try to put God in some other position in our lives, uh, it's not good. It leads to bad things. It leads to a lack of joy. Um, And we'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But Paul is trying to remind us of the foolishness of acting like we are all that because of the size of our bank accounts or our 401ks. Um, At the end of the day, again, those are things that God has provided to us. So Paul also wants to remind us, though, uh, which is called out in that passage, to be re- that we're to not put our hope in wealth because of its uncertain nature. So we can't depend on it. Our money is given by God, and it can be taken away. Um, now, for a quick little side note on that, um, a little while back, um, actually about 12 years ago, um, myself and my wife and our first daughter, Sarah, actually moved up from Indiana uh, back to Michigan where we were, uh, my wife and I both were born and raised. So we lived there for a while. We had a great now house in a great neighborhood. It was around you know, 2008, again, soon after the birth of our, our first daughter, Sarah. And uh, we figured, you know, it might make sense to be closer to some free babysitting. <laughs> and grandma, grandma, grandpa, uh, if you're listening, uh, basically we appreciate that tremendously. And both sets of grandparents really chipped in initially, as well as some, some other friends. And, and we are forever indebted for that. Uh, but we also wanted them to have the opportunity to be close to their, their grandkids, and so, we, you know, so that's what we did. Well, at the time, things were going great. Um, my wife and I both found jobs up here in Michigan, so you know, that was good. And, uh, but we, weren't, we were trying to hold off on starting them and kind of pushing back on our new employers because we wanted to sell our house. Well, our realtor said, oh, you've got a great house. This is a perfect neighborhood, a lot of young kids and families. Um, it's the only house for sale. It's going to sell like that, no problem. So he said, all right, well, I guess we can move back up to Michigan. And we did. So the first couple weeks after we moved, we had dozens of showings. It was wonderful. But, you know, nobody was biting, but we had a lot of hope. Um, Well, then after the first few weeks, basically, um, it dried up and the recession hit. And we went from having like dozens of showings every week to having one or two a month. And this continued for 13 months. And so we actually lived here in, the, uh, in, in Michigan with a home that we paid for and utilities and a home in Indiana that we were paying for in utilities because we both had, enough, we both had jobs and the bank didn't consider us to be uh, worthy of a short sale or anything. That we, we were able to just sweep by, so we were good. So we had no, a few offers come through in those months too, but long story short, again, uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't meet them because they were, they were too low. So um, basically, uh, about a year, a couple months actually, into me, uh, into us having moved, um, I ended up. Uh, my position was eliminated at the firm I was working in. So um, lost my job uh, and uh, came home, and we, you know, were a bit upset. Prayed about it. Uh, said, okay, well, God must have a plan. And then I remembered uh, about a week prior to this that I had been reading a blog of a friend of mine who's a pastor in Indiana. And he had gone to a village in, in India where there were a lot of just incredibly impoverished uh, families and children. And he had been leading a, 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 basically a movement to try to sponsor all of these kids in this village. And he had gotten quite a ways, but there were still a number of kids yet to be sponsored. And that came back to my mind, actually, as my wife and I were sitting there working through this. And I thought, you know, even with me losing my job, we have one income, 
We have two house payments. We don't know where the money's going to come from for any of this to work out. And we're still better off than those kids in India. And so I, without even thinking, looking at our budget, we just said, all right, we're going to sponsor a kid. So we sponsored a kid, uh, got right on there, you know, paid the first month, and then didn't think a thing about it. Um, now, a week later, we got a call from our bank and found out that, hey, because I lost my job, we were going to be able to do a short sale. And so we had a hardship, and so we were able to sell our house and, and it, to a wonderful family, actually. Um, and it all ended up working out shortly after that. I ended up finding another job. Um, so I'm not saying that all happened because we sponsored a child, but I am saying that um, at the end of the day, um, God's going to provide. You don't have to worry about, uh, about that. So among the many lessons we learned from that, though, um, is that uh, God had other plans, you know, and he allowed us to really understand the true uncertainty of wealth. Um, it was also around this time that we got real serious about our personal finances and uh, got full Dave Ramsey'd. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, you know uh, beans and rice, the whole nine yards, literally. Uh, and uh, I learned to really love black beans. Uh, so, but we, but we, we went through that. And, and because of that experience, God allowed us to, to really get our finances in order. So, uh, so again, money and all that it provides at the end of the day is temporary. Um, I've, I've heard it said that uh, a U-Haul never follows a hearse, um, and it's true. <laughs> I was just by a funeral procession the other day, and uh, it's true. Uh, you can't take it with you. Now, uh, I'd like to show you a picture here real quick of a cemetery. So this is the, uh, this is the Granary Cemetery, actually, in downtown Boston. Um, I said it kind of like an accent there, Boston, so I learned, I learned that. It was basically about a month ago that my wife and I uh, had an opportunity on a medical uh, tourism trip <laughs> that we had, one of a few this year, unfortunately, um, that we went to Boston. We had, were able to take a couple extra days. And this cemetery, actually, this is a picture is a portion of it, um, is in, um, uh, has a number of the founding fathers, like Paul Revere and Samuel Adams uh, and some other fellow revolutionaries that are buried there. Now, many of them were successful businessmen and professionals in addition to everything else they accomplished. However, at the moment they died, none of that wealth, none of the uh, possessions they accrued or the institutions they helped to create and found, as amazing as they are, were able to go with them. So even if you could, and you can't quite see in this picture, but even the headstones here, uh, when you were there, you could see many of them, the, the fronts were just falling off or had worn away over time. And it's only been a couple hundred years. But yet again, even that is temporary. Uh, their mem the memory of them, you know, begins to fade. So, okay, if we can't rely on wealth and the work of our own hands, <laughs> what are we to do? Um, well, for the answer to that, let's go back to the second half of verse 17 and let's uh, talk a little bit about the relationship, our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So the second half says, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for, and for our enjoyment. So Paul is saying that God should be the recipient of our hope and that he will provide for us. One second. We can trust God to provide for everything we need and then even some of our wants. Now, money can't be the source of our peace, our hope, or our security. Only, only God can provide that. Just look at, so one of the things that helps me kind of rest in that truth is when we look at really the vastness of God's creation. So another thing that Kate and I were able to do while we were in Boston, so it's all kind of fresh in my mind, but it gave me some, some great analogies here, is we were able to go to the Museum of Science uh, while we were there. There was like no one there in the museum. It was COVID and a few of the things were even closed. But it was amazing because we had the whole like huge place to ourselves. Kate and I are major science geeks. So we love uh, going to science museums. Like anywhere we go, we'll try to hit their science museum. 
And, uh, and so we went there. It was amazing. It's, it's, it's a great place if you're, if you're in the area and have the chance. Um, but uh, we took the opportunity to go there for a whole day. And we spent a while in the space section that they have. And we specifically spent a while looking at this exhibit that shows like a series of images that portray the size of the universe starting at our solar system. So the sun, you know, Earth, Mars, all the planets. And then each successive image is a depiction of one step removed, so like zoomed out from there. So you go from there to the Milky Way galaxy and then like a supercluster and like all, uh, all these things until you eventually end up in the entire known universe. And you kind of have just a depiction of that size-wise. And it, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. In our, so just a few stats to give you an idea because I couldn't possibly capture that in an image. Um, in our neighborhood within the Milky Way galaxy, there's over 200 billion stars, one of which is our sun. So there's 200 billion more over that stars like our sun just in our Milky Way galaxy. So, so that's insane. Like That's crazy. And around a lot of those stars are probably other planets in many cases and, and things like that. In the whole of God's created universe, though, there are over 2 trillion galaxies. <laughs> so, so you figure... 200, over 200 billion stars in our galaxy, and then there's over 2 trillion galaxies. It's insane. It's, 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 you can't even, it's hard to even fathom. And, and the Milky Way is just an average size galaxy in the midst of that. So then you zoom down even into the atomic and cellular level. And so you go the opposite direction, and in the microscopic realm. And there's a whole universe there. And, and so there's so much to it. And even the most video clips I tried to look for to illustrate this or to show were too long to really fit in this message, which I'm sure is already going to be too long as it is. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's just so massive. And so if there's anything you can get out of this, and if there's what I, what I, it is what I got out of it, which is God is behind everything that we can see and everything we can't see, and then so very much more than that that if we believe in a God who holds not just this world in our hand, but the entire universe, we can trust that he's capable to provide for all of our needs. In Matthew 10, 29 through 31, it says, and this is ESV, for those of you keeping track, um, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are, a more, you are of more value than many sparrows. Sparrows. So one more story here from my life. If there's anything I can think of that looks even close to the level of care that God provides for a sparrow, it's actually my daughter Megan's care for our cat Zoe. <laughs> now, I, can, I, can absolute, I, I am absolutely not a cat person. And by the way, those of you out in Facebook land, this might be a great time if you want to put in the comments. If you're a cat or a dog person, and I'm sorry, there's been so many debates in this world in the last year. I hate to start another one, but... If you're a cat person or a dog person, just shout it out and maybe even give a reason why you're that way. Um, but for me, I am definitely not a cat person. I am 100% dog. However, I have taken to Zoe because she is a rodent-killing machine. <laughs> she is incredible at it. There is literally not a day that goes by. This is no exaggeration that I, we don't walk outside to get the mail or whatever and we open the door and there's a dead something laying there as a gift to us um, that she put there. Um, and these range, by the way, from small mice to like large rabbits the size of Zoe. <laughs> so she, she is constantly going after stuff and cleaning up the yard. Um, now, as much as I like our cat and our other girls and Kate like the cat too a lot, 
Um, Megan loves our cat, Zoe. I mean, loves her. She's always concerned with making sure that she is fed, she's warm, that she's safe, and she's as happy as an outdoor cat can be. She'll go and check her, like this time of year, she'll check the heating pad that we have out there for her and all this stuff to make sure it's, it's, it's good. She dances with it. She'll lay on the driveway next to it. She'll talk to it at length. She even hugs and kisses it. And by the way, sometimes these kisses happen immediately after it nibbling on the latest five-day-old uh, catch. So it makes us a bit queasy, but never Megan. She doesn't seem to care, such as her love for Zoe the cat. So even as much as Megan loves our outdoor cat, it still pales in comparison to the love that our Heavenly Father has for us and, and the desire that he has to care for us. So a loving father wants to make sure his children are cared for. Now, sometimes that care can look different than what we think it should. So this is important, I guess, to really get in and keep in mind. It doesn't mean, though, that our Heavenly Father loves us any less. It just means that his ways are not our ways. And there's a perfect scripture that speaks to this in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So basically, we can know that just because we don't always understand what God's care for us looks like, it doesn't mean that he cares for us any less. So Paul says not to rely on money, but to put our hope and trust in God to provide what we need. And we know that God loves and cares for us and truly desires to provide for us in a way that only he can. So the next question is, how are we to care for our Heavenly Father's provision for us in our lives? So verse 18 tells us something about that. So in verse 18, uh, it says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So Paul was calling out the Ephesians to be wealthy in good deeds, and secondly, to be generous and willing to share whatever provisions God had given them. So this is much easier when we realize um, that we are simply stewards of what God has provided us. And now, again, a steward is someone who's cared or who's called to care for something that's not their own. The definition of steward is to manage or look after another's property. So in this case, the property is everything we've been given, <laughs> including our monetary resources. Now, when we circle back to money as a tool, we know that we can know that the person who originally designs a tool is always going to be the one who has the best knowledge of its intended use. In the case of money, our God who created everything, including the idea and concept of money and possessions, is the one who has the ultimate knowledge of how it should and shouldn't be used. And we have to rely on that. Now, this doesn't mean that God wants us to live out a meager existence with only food and the clothes on our backs and some just barely enough shelter to, to keep us warm in the winter. Though I get the feeling, honestly, when you read scripture, um, that, it's at, that in, in, in living that kind of life, it's actually easier, easier to ensure one's right relationship with God than amassing a large amount of wealth. And scripture speaks to that. Again, it's not impossible, but wealth many times will get in the way of us having that kind of right relationship with God that we need. God wants us to truly have enjoyment for what he's provided, both in the receiving of it and the giving away of it. But here's the key when it comes to enjoying all that stuff and the, things that he, the stuff and things <laughs> that he's allowed to come our way. We weren't meant to be owned by the enjoyment of it. We're meant to enjoy it, but it's not meant to own us. It's not meant to become an idol. All of our material possessions have to occupy their proper place in our lives or else they will become our idols and they will have a place reserved, they will take up a place that's reserved really for God. And if that happens, we can't have the true joy 
that God intends for us. This joy will not be available to us if God occupies any other place but the top. Now, St. Augustine, in his book Confessions, talks about this. Um, Now, St. Augustine was a theologian and philosopher in the late 4th, early 5th centuries. And he found himself wondering, after reading some ancient writings, even predating him, um, about what what is it that causes people to be discontent and lack joy in their lives. What he found was that the cause of the discontentment, discontentment was really uh, what he called disordered loves. He recognized that the problem was not that people didn't love, it's that their loves were out of order or that they were loving the wrong things. So this ties in directly with the idea of the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. Not money, but the love of money because it's loving the wrong thing. We weren't meant to love money. Instead, if we place God daily as the number one love of our lives, the rest of things, family, career, money, um, hobbies, everything, fall into place. And when we need to give them up or shift them in priority, it's made easier because it is in service and submission to the number one love, our Heavenly Father. It no longer becomes a tight-fisted thing that we have to pry our fingers open to do. It just it flows naturally because God's been put in his proper place. When things are in the right order, it it really is just a natural side effect um, of our rightly ordered relationship with our Heavenly Father. Now, this also has the added bonus of relieving us of the skepticism, uh, and I I say us because I'm definitely included in this, that can be a precursor to potential acts of generosity. So what I mean by this is if you, like me, sometimes happen to cross paths with a homeless person on the street and they're asking you for some money for food or whatever, you know, you'll tend to kind of doubt that, well, yeah, okay, sure, whatever, I'm going to give this money, they're just going to go buy booze with it. You know, they're, they're not going to get food, you know, they're just going to drink themselves silly. But you know what? You can stop worrying if you have that mindset. Because if you feel a nudge from God to give the money, be free and give generously. Because as we've already discussed, God is more than capable of dealing with someone who might be deceitful. But also, he's just as capable of refilling your wallet and even going beyond that. So you don't have to worry. You can give freely. So we've talked about our relationship with money, our relationship with God, and with kind of the intersection of those two relationships. Well, lastly, let's wrap all this up and talk more about what a truly abundant life marked by joy looks like. So in verse 19, it says, In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, earlier in the chapter, Paul tells Timothy about the importance of contentment. In verse 6, he says, But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now, being content with what God gives us is a major key to having a joy-filled life. Um, In Randy Elkhorn's book, Managing God's Money, he shares the following, which I found was, was just, this was one of the things that really hit me hard. People store up treasures on earth rather than in heaven, not only because of greed and selfishness, but also because of fear and insecurity. Yet putting our hope in earthly treasures does nothing but multiply anxiety. Why? Because earthly treasures are so temporary and uncertain. They cannot bear the weight of our trust. Solomon captured a profound truth. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Ecclesiastes 5.12 At the end of the day, pretending that all we have is ours to control and that we actually have the power to do it will rob us of true joy and contentment at the end of the day. 
If God wants us to have plenty, we'll have it and we'll be thankful for it. And if he calls us to have little, we should have that and be thankful for that too. God is not impressed with zeros and commas. He wants our hearts. And if our hearts are focused on him and his priorities, which as we spoke on earlier, are being rich in good deeds and being generous and willing to share, then we will experience lives of true abundance with a joy that transcends our circumstances. However, there is another level to all this though. For a Christ follower, the best kind of generosity is when we share the most valuable thing any of us can give. And that is to share the hope that the gospel brings to those who need it. After all, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the ultimate life that is truly life that Paul is talking about in verse 19. This is the ultimate example of generosity. It was not meant to only be received by us but to be given away to as many people as will listen. So this week, as we look towards the Thanksgiving holiday, I encourage each of you to consider not only what you're thankful for, and we have so many things to be thankful for, regardless of the election, regardless of COVID, of any of this, there's still so many things that we have to be thankful for. But also I ask that you think about what it might be that God is calling you to give away. That could be a money, that could be uh, something you're holding on to that takes the place of God in your life. Um, but it also could be the gospel. For those of you who know someone who needs to hear that there is a God who loved them enough to send his only son to die on the cross for their sins so they might live with him forever in heaven, don't hesitate to share that ultimate act of generosity with them.